Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. What in the world is happening on Wall Street? Economic indicators. Who knows where this is going to end up? To understand the economy... You have to understand human nature. Welcome to the David McWilliams podcast, the podcast which aims to make economics and today politics more comprehensible, more accessible and actually a little bit more relevant to your life. Now, today we're coming from the Dorky Book Festival. And we bring all sorts of thinkers and writers and creative people into Dublin, into Dorky, to shed light on the world. And one book that I picked up this year was a book by a Turkish writer called Ece Temelkaran, and it was called How to Lose a Country. And in actual fact, and this is all bragging, Brian Eno, the producer of U2, of Talking Heads, of David Bowie, was the man who actually said to me, you need to read this book, The Seven Steps, from democracy to dictatorship, which encapsulates what's going on in the world right now. And, amazingly, H.A. is here with us in Tokyo. How are you? Oh, I'm fine. <laughs> and I'm, you know, very lucky to have a producer of my side, such a producer. <laughs> well, exactly. Listen, we'll give him the checks in the post. Right? Yeah. <laughs> But no, the book is extraordinary. And the great thing about it is also very, very easy to read because you've set it out in various different headings as to how a country... Maybe we could say how a good country goes bad. Explain to me the process. We were talking to Jared Diamond a couple of weeks ago, and he was talking about the end of democracy in America. And he was fearing the end of democracy in America. And he said there's two ways that democracies can end. One is like this boiling a frog metaphor that happens very slowly and you don't really realize. And the other one we're much more used to is the, the coup d'etat or the massive change. Your book is actually somewhere in the middle. There's actually a process which is going on. Can you explain it to us? Because it's fascinating. Uh, before starting, uh, I think we should all uh, realize that fear does not bring anything good. So there's nothing to fear. It's just we have to realize what's happening and pull our you know, shit together in a way. <laughs> and I'm talking globally. Um, I... You know, I, I I'm coming from Turkey, and everybody pretty much know what has happened in Turkey and how we ended up in this um, autocratic regime. Actually, I'm going to stop you there, Ece. You probably know what's happened in Turkey. Yeah. Many of our listeners will be aware mm -hmm. what's happened in Turkey, but maybe wouldn't be aware of the full story. Like, 
what Turkey was like, let's say, 10 years ago for women's rights, for democracy, for the freedom of press, for all these things. And what's it like now? And how did that happen? It was a normal, crazy country. And now it is uh, completely insane. Uh, very shortly, it's like this. And uh, 2002 was the year that uh, Mr. Erdogan came to power. And since then, he has been in power. And everything that you mentioned has deteriorated. Uh, very, very briefly, it's like this. But people, people of the world, uh, international media, started looking at Turkey very carefully, only after 2013, when Gezi uprising happened and the people of Turkey rejected to be ruled by a dictator. And then 2016, there was the military coup attempt, which made everything worse. So these were the, you know, the uh, spectacular insanity moments in Turkish politics. But before that, when international, big international media and opinion makers were thinking that, oh, this is very good for Turkey. Uh, finally, a real, uh, you know, democratic leader is ruling Turkey. Real democracy is in town and so on and so forth. That's why I keep joking uh, with Americans saying that you're lucky with Trump and you're lucky you're having this today because nobody's telling you that, oh, you're lucky you now have a real democracy. Uh, so we had to listen to that on top of the fact that we were suffering under an uh, oppressive regime. But what happened in Turkey, I realized a few years ago, is now happening in other countries. Explain I have that to me. Explain that to me. Uh, European countries and United States. Uh, before I written this book, and the, st- the book starts with that story, anecdote, in fact, I was in London, London launching my previous book, Turkey, The Insane and Melancholy. And after I talked about the book, after what, you know, talking about what we have been through in Turkey, probably a British lady was so touched. So she brought her hands together and she asked me, like, what can I do for you? And this was right after Brexit, uh, the first Brexit referendum. And I said, well, what can I do for you, actually? Because you're now in the same trouble. You're having the same trouble. And then I started looking at European countries, Britain and United States, and I saw that the same pattern is repeating itself there as well. As I wrote this book uh, in, uh, throughout two, uh, 2017. And when I started the book, in fact, nobody would imagine that United States would come to this, European countries would come to this, and Brexit would come to this kind of insanity where Boris Johnson is seriously considered as a British prime minister. People would think that Which is worse, his British business, his Turkish bit, or his Russian bit? (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, yeah, anyway. No, but let's go to the, the process, because what you've set out by starting with create a movement... Yeah, I mean, like these, these are common global patterns. So, so let's 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 look at the patterns. Yeah, um, I find out seven patterns uh, that takes a country from di- uh, democracy to dictatorship. And the first is create a movement because the party is over. Political parties are dying. They're dying concepts. Uh, they are 20th, 20th century concepts, whereas we are in 21st century and rising right-wing populism is a 21st century issue. And this, this is why probably they don't create parties because they are, you know, bulky, old and dysfunctional uh, political tools now. They're creating movements and then they want respect as a political identity. And while they're organizing and mobilizing the ignorant masses with their promises of greatness, 
they claim a place on the t- at the table of the conventional politics. As soon as you respect them, they sit at that table and they elbow out all the conventional politics. But not only that, but also our basic consensuses, not only political consensuses, but also moral consensuses. This is the first step. And then the second step is quite maddening. That is disrupting the rationale and terrorizing the language. In fact, and it is the second chapter in the book, and I uh, I created this fictitious uh, dialogue between Aristoteles and a populist spin doctor. And I showed how uh, right-wing populist discourse is actually paralyzing the basic human reasoning. Uh, it's a funny uh, conversation, that fictitious one, but actually in everyday, uh, in our everyday life, we're having such conversations with people who support Brexit or people who Give support... Give me an example of this, because I read, I read the piece about Aristotle and the, and, the, and the populist demagogue or spin doctor, and, and it is fascinating because it's the bastardization of language, it's the taking over of the language, it's almost hijacking the tone of the debate. Exactly. That's why many of us do not know what to talk, what to do when we are speaking to these people. We are, we get shocked, we get surprised, we we feel like, uh, you know, the ground is shifting and there is no basic consensus and that basic consensus being the, you know, human reasoning. Okay, let's say that we're talking to a person who thinks the world is flat. And what we do is we say, no, it's round. And let me show you the picture of the planet. Here's the picture of the planet. As you see, it's round. And he says, okay, but I believe otherwise. And then you find yourself trying to prove why seeing is more valid than believing. People think that this is a technical issue that can be handled with, uh, you know, conversational techniques or we can have a, you know, consensus and so on. No, but this, this is a philosophical confrontation because you really have to prove there why seeing is more important than believing because there is a person who thinks or who believes that beliefs are better than you know, scientific facts. And, you know, you can multiply these examples, one of them being, one of them could be Trump not believing in climate change, for instance. Which is a great example. Exactly. (laughs) Uh, So this is the second, you know, step or common global common pattern of right-wing populism. And the third one is removing the shame uh, and I, you know, the th- chapter, the t- chapter title is Remove the Shame, Immorality is the New Black. I think this is the part where we feel in our personal lives uh, what right-wing populism do to people, to humankind. Because it's not, you know, right-wing populism is not limited to Westminster circles or, you know, White House or, you know, higher echelons of politics, but rather it's happening uh, in our personal lives, in our daily lives, and it is ruining our uh, personal relationships as well. Give me an example of that, the... the the shame idea, or getting rid of shame. I'm like the, ba- the 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 simplest idea is all these trolls you're seeing on social media telling lies, uh, you know, making slurs, uh, humiliating people, and so on. And you think you to yourself, how can they be so cruel? How can they they lie so repetitively? I'm like, don't they have no shame? Yes, they do not have shame. Uh, and I do think that uh, post-truth, the idea, uh, the concept of post-truth has a lot to do with post-truth, the concept, okay. Okay. Of concept of shame. 
um, many newspapers around the world or TVs, TV channels are trying to deal with this idea of post-truth as if it's a technical matter. But I do think that it has a philosophical background and it has been there since 1980s. As you know, Oxford Dictionary chose the word as the word of the uh, year in 2016, post-truth. But actually, it was there. It was happening. And this um, damage on global sh- global morality has been going on since several years. This is why I think that right-wing populism is the monstrous child of neoliberalism that imposed its morality on the world since 1980s. Uh, so we're living in this world where power is sacred. And in order to win, you can do anything. And when you have such understanding of the world, when you have such a perspective of life, it is only consistent that you have, you know, Boris Johnson or Trump, because these are the guys who take this, you know, understanding to the extreme. And they lie. They've no shame. They make stuff up. But do you think that this is almost now an inevitable momentum? A little, yeah, uh, not inevitable, but uh, completely consistent, I would say, with the uh, near history. Uh, I wouldn't like to say inevitable, otherwise I would, <laughs> I should give up living and go somewhere and lock myself up. Um, many people think that, you know, when they see what's happening to the world, they feel like they they want, you know, there's nothing that can be done. It's a natural process and it's going to go on forever. It's not natural. It has, it has been imposed on, on us, on the entire population of the uh, globe, but we can overcome it. Uh, I do think that we can overcome it. It, it. The only thing we need to do is to get into a global conversation and global solidarity, hopefully. Because all these guys, from Steve Bannon to, I don't know, Trump to Boris Johnson to Nigel Farage to whoever you think of as right-wing populists. Putin, all these guys. Orban and so on. They're all in touch. They are collaborating. So, I mean, it would be too naive to think that we can beat these guys on national basis when they are so globally connected. That's why I wrote the book, in fact. So Germans can speak to French, Irish can speak to, I don't know, Turkish. Yeah. yeah, I'm like, you know, about what not to do to start with, because we have tried several things that didn't work. And at some point in Turkey, the most popular joke was uh, maybe the aliens are running a you know massive scale experiment on our country to see how long it would take us to get completely insane. And if you feel the same thing, if you're a British or French, this means that you need to speak to some Turks to see that uh, those things that they did did not work. So we have to come. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. But with another, you know, solution to this problem. Can we go back to your conversation with the British lady who said, what can I do for you? And you're saying, hold on a second, darling, it's actually what can I do for you? Do you think that people in Western Europe and the United States have a false sense of security in the permanence of our democracies and our systems and our civil liberties and all those things that we take actually for granted? Yes, I do think that. And every country has uh, her own material of feeling superior, I think. And we had Arabs in Turkey. We never thought that such a thing would happen to Turkey. I mean, like those crazy things happen to Arabs. Not to Turkey. Like, yeah, not to Turks. It? Turks yeah. are a superior breed. Exactly. Uh, and British people probably have Turks as this, uh, you know, material to feel superior. All those crazy things happen in crazy countries like Turkey. In fact, you know, I've been launching this book in several countries and one Dutch journalist told me, oh, that can happen to you because you're Muslim. And I said, oh, good luck to you if you think that Christianity will save you from right-wing populism. So, you know, uh, everybody is trying Many exactly. Many people are trying to find a mm, find an idea to hide into when it comes to you know because they are fearing and they know actually they feel something is changing but they cannot uh, you know specifically put their finger on. So uh, actually, there was another lady yesterday. Uh, I was drinking a glass of wine and this amazingly beautiful eighty something year old lady was drinking her wine too. And it's uh, probably because of an occupational hazard. I asked her like about politics. So she said she's all for Boris Johnson. And I asked why. Uh, and she said, at least he's colorful. And I thought all these, you know, Western democracies, uh, they think they're immune, but they actually didn't do not realize how horrible, how damaging it was to their democracies to equate politics to entertainment. Yes. And Trump is very much in the entertainment mode. Johnson is in like, the entertainment yeah, mode. Exactly. It's kind of like the infantilization of politics. Yeah. Like, like, is... Let's make a big joke of it. Yeah. And we make a joke of immigrants and we make a joke of this, that and the other. And Trump really started that. Remember he made a joke of the deformed kid, the kid, it was a, no, it was a journalist who had some yeah. cerebral palsy and it was a big joke. And people said, well, he's just saying, he's just been colourful. To what extent is this really a a tool that has been used? Or is it just, we are unshameable? Go back to your idea. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, in the book, I reversed it. I reversed Hannah Arendt's famous term, banality of evil to uh, evil of banality. All these banalities that we have been witnessing, especially since 1980s, we thought that they would be harmless. What is the harm to have 24 hours uh, television with all the banal stuff in it? 
Or what is the harm of having this, you know, uh, these, um, what was the show that Trump uh, was? Apprentice. Apprentice. What's the harm in it to humiliate few people and to call them losers and so on? But that culture, that imposed culture is now damaging our understanding of life, the definition of humankind and of, uh, you know, accordingly our democracies, our political systems, because that banality now multiplied and it reached the upper echelons of politics. Now it's ruling us. So, yeah, actually, that is why I reversed the term uh, to evil of banality. Can I ask you about the personal impact of this on a Turkish journalism? Because if we're saying that what happened in Turkey is not a function of being Islamic, is not a function of being the west of the Bosporus, is not a function of being close to Iran. It's actually a process whereby a democracy can become dismantled. Mm-hmm. You've been a journalist in Turkey for many years. What is the personal toll or impact or moments in your life where you realized this is going the wrong way? Uh, well, I am one of the early birds in, in that sense. Um, it was it was clear to me what was happening because these guys were not coming from the democratic background. They didn't have the democratic tradition. They were right-wing conservative MPs, you know, uh, they were belonged to that kind of tradition. But in 2007, in the second term of Mr. Erdogan, when he won the elections, uh, on the night of the elections, he gave this victory speech and he said, those who didn't vote for us are the colors of this country. And many people then... The what of this country? Colors, you know, they are the colors of this country, sort of. Meaning other colors, what? The other, other colors. colors of this country. And almost all the journalists then, you know, commented on the speech as if this is an embracing talk. It's kind of almost like the rainbow nation of Turkey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I thought, oh, no, 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 no. We are now the embellishment, you know, on the plate. You know, the embellishment, you don't eat them and you don't need them, actually. We are not the main course anymore. We are the embellishment, so we are actually the second uh, class and we are tolerated. And I hate this word. Everybody thinks it's a great word. You know, tolerance, understanding, concepts. No, it's not a good word. If you're tolerated, you are pardoned in a way, you know. Your existence. You've been given permission to exist. Exactly, exactly. You're allowed to exist. So that was the time that I started writing really hardcore stuff, which ended up, of course, me losing my job in 2012. Um, Tell me about that. Oh, well, there's nothing to tell. It was like a 30-second telephone conversation (laughs) with my editor-in-chief. I was in Tunis writing my novel, Women Who Blow On Nuts. And then he called me and he said, you know, uh, well, AJ, mm, you know why? Mm." I said, yeah, okay, thank you, thank you. And end of my 20-year-old journalism. You were fired because I wrote two articles about the Kurds and, yeah, about Mr. Erdogan and the massacre that happened on Iraqi-Turkish border then. And Mr. Erdogan didn't want anybody to write about it. And I was this very smart person (laughs) who wrote about it. (laughs) Yeah. so So you get fired because somebody had a word with somebody who talked to your editor, who said, we don't want those sort of people. Probably. I'm like, these th- things happen in exactly the same way everywhere in the world. I'm like, somebody calls somebody and then that's, you know, editor calls you. Everybody knows why it's happening. So there's nothing to fight about even. 
So yeah, that's pretty. I, I am. I, I think I am the first one who was fired from the mainstream media. Whereas socialists, Kurdish media, and so on, they were already under oppression. They were already fired. Yeah. But so, what does social media mean to you? You've like what two and a half million, yeah, Twitter followers. Mm. So you that that's a big big audience. Well, you know what? To be completely honest, I don't take it seriously. No, because you know, once you reach a certain follower, Twitter. Uh, makes kind of an advertisement sort of, you know, um, Twitter uh, kind of suggests your name to the new fo- new Twitter users. So they don't even know what you're doing and so on. Probably some of these 200 uh, to and a half million people know what I'm doing, but, and some of them are haters as well. And although I, you know, delete them, it doesn't work. Um, they're always there. So This goes back to your shaming idea that... Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, for a long time, I thought we could, you know, we could find a common ground and so on, as many British and American people are thinking now. Uh, but there is no such thing, especially for those devoted, you know, uh, supporters of the movement. Yeah, social media. I'm like, I learned a lot personally when social harassment, social media harassment wasn't a thing. I was social um, harassed a lot on social media. So I know that it is like uh, having a sword fight with the ghosts. You cannot beat them because they are not people. They're just ghosts and you are there, you know. Expending your your energy. Sword, yeah. When When we look now, so we look at Turkey, you look at what happened in Russia, which was quite similar under Mr. Putin. You look at what's happening in Poland. You look at what's happening in Hungary. You look at what's happening sometimes every now and then in Serbia. Okay, ratcheting up of nationalism, anti-immigrant, all that sort of stuff. You look at Le Pen in France. Brexit is is happening. Trump exists and will possibly win again. (laughs) Okay. In conclusion, where do you see all this panning out? Many people want to do this, you know, Second World War references, uh, Hitler, you know, Mussolini and so on. Well, I think First World War reference would be more understandable and more correct uh, because we are going through a very interesting time. We're having an industrial revolution and the ground is shaking incredibly. And the, uh, the need for security, the need for home, the need for belonging is terrorized. So they are trying, people are trying to uh, go back to the old days, in quotes, good old days. And this need, uh, this craving for sort of security is exploited by these leaders, definitely. But there are several other things that I mentioned in the book, why this is happening and what we can do about it. And we should also admit the fact that social media is a new invention. Uh, when radio was the became the fir- uh, mass uh, communication tool for the first time, it created nations and then it created fascism. And social media is now invented, but we still cannot uh, regulate it. And there are no strong enough democracies in the world that can regulate social media. The only political power that can uh, regulate social media, in fact, is China and Russia. And they're not doing it in the most democratic way, as we all know. So as long as this ground shift goes on, we're going to be suffering from the consequences of this 
crisis, so to speak. But I do believe in humankind. I do think that we have a moral duty to believe in humankind. I need to say this because after being subjected to right-wing populism for so long, and after being maddened by uh, what you have seen, one really loses its faith in humankind. You start thinking, maybe they're all banal anyway. Maybe, maybe, you know, there's nothing to save here anyway. Uh, it might happen to American people. It might happen to British very soon. So I do have a moral duty to believe in humankind. And I w- want to tell people that this determination to create beauty in every kind of, uh, in every way, beauty, uh, we should stick together because we are not crazy. We are not we are not ignorant, uh, we know what's happening to the world and we can reverse the current or we can manipulate this current, uh, uh, this political current. That's why I wrote the book, in fact. Well, it's, it's an amazing read. H.A. Tebelkarn, you're just arrived in Doki. You're going to be here for three or four days. It's going yeah. to be all classes of things to discuss. Exactly. You're going to have all classes of people going to see you. And uh, welcome to Ireland. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much, David. Thank you for having me. Thanks very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Now, before we let you go, I want to give you a sneak preview of some premium content which you can access via Patreon. I know you said the peace process is a 1990s concept, but it's the one concept that the rest of the world has signed up to. What does that battleground in the centre-right mean from our perceptions of the two-state solution of Palestine at the West Bank? What does it mean for that existential question? It means that your perception is obsolete and largely irrelevant. It means that in the Middle East, in Eastern Europe, Russia, the Middle East, South Asia, East Asia, South America, everywhere outside of the West, the peace process doesn't exist. The Palestinian issue is relegated way, way down the list. And there are other issues that have come to dominate that. Now, we can discuss at great length why this came about and who's responsible and and where it leads to and is there anything positive about it. You can talk about it from now to doomsday. It doesn't make any difference. If you enjoyed that, you can hear the full episode and much more by joining us on Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.